This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is probably the last episode for a little while we're going to do on atonement and talking about atonement theories. And basically, all that means is how do we think about the cross and what did Jesus come here to do? What was God's role in all this? All of that stuff. That's the atonement. And this will probably be the last one we, where we sort of focus on that. Um, we do have a guest coming up in a few weeks where we'll talk about more of that. But I think what we want to do is focus in on one of the things we've talked about, which is this idea of liberation. It's a, it's a way to think about the cross and what Jesus did that is really helpful. It's a, it's a big theme in the Bible, so it's really important to, to think about more and to talk about. And I think it's going to be helpful in the fact that we've received a lot of kind of questions back about God's wrath and it seems like there's a lot in the Bible talking about that. And doesn't that mean that God does want to repay us for the bad things we did in, in some way? And so we want to talk about that more, but I think doing that through the lens of liberation is really going to help us to see how sometimes there's a word that you see in the Bible that there might be a couple ways to think about it. And some might be more helpful than others. And they might open up whole new avenues um, that you just never thought about before. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. And we're going to do that by first talking about liberation. Tim, you said on the last episode that the views or kind of the, the different motifs in looking at the atonement are kind of like golf clubs in a golf bag where you're, depending on what shot you need to hit or where you're laying on the golf course, you would need to use a different club. And that's what all these different views that we talked about in episode 17 can be helpful, different ways to think about it. But there's also kind of that, that one club that you always come to that like is kind of your favorite club. You just hit it really well. For me, that was the seven iron. And one time I was on this, uh, this course and I was right in the middle of fairway. I mean, amazing drive. And I was going up to hit my, my second shot with my seven iron, which is, is my favorite club or was, you'll see. And I, I just got the perfect swing and I just, I nailed it. But the problem was what I didn't see was down a couple inches in the ground, there was this metal grate and I hit the grate in before hitting the ball and just, it just rattled my arms and just shook my arms. And then I looked down at my favorite club and there's a big divot taken out of my club. And so my seven iron was never the same and uh, I'm too cheap to buy a new one, but yeah. Anyways, we have our favorite clubs. That's my point. And that is why you shouldn't believe in penal substitution. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But anyways, so you have your favorite club and that's, that can be equated with your, your kind of the, the go-to most helpful view of atonement. And, and so one helpful one, another way of looking at all this is, uh, is through this lens of liberation. Yeah, and so, you know, it's mixing metaphors here, but we said it's not just that uh, we tend to have one favorite club. It's that that club ends up dominating our our vocal point. It becomes a lens through which we see everything else. So we, we judge all the rest of the motifs. We judge all the scriptures through that primary lens. Uh, and this is just something that's sort of inevitable. We can't hold all these things in our head at one time. We end up having one that we privilege. And uh, so mixing metaphors even further, some of the motifs can can operate as hubs that kind of hold everything together. And so what Mako uh, a couple episodes back highlighted for us was putting God's desire to restore his restorative justice and his healing as the central hub through which you could 
attach all the other motifs. And I think it's it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it's a great pushback to this idea of God as retributive as the central hub. And liberation as a hub, another option for being sort of the primary privilege lens which we look at things through, I think is equally powerful. It has uh, equal merit in going all the way back to the earliest theologians in church history. And it also gives us a lot of power to unsee some of the distorted things that the the central lens of penal substitution had caused us to see and allows us to relearn some of these biblical ideas and pieces of theology in really beautiful, life-giving, liberating ways. Okay, so Nate, when I say liberation or liberation theology or thinking about the cross as liberating, what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't think about that too much. If I if I stretch, I could say I think it in some ways liberates us from death. We, you know, we're not a slave to death anymore. We don't have to die now because um, Jesus saved us from that. So we're liberated from from death. Um, that's one that comes to my mind. Yeah, totally. Give you a little Bible trivia to get us back further into Old Testament stuff. Where's the first time you see the word salvation or the word redemption in the Bible? Potentially somewhere around like the Exodus from Egypt after they cross the Red Sea. Yep, totally. So uh, it's in the Song of Moses. They're led through the Red Sea to escape Egypt. And they sing this song in Exodus 15. In the second verse, well, the first verse says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And that's the first time basically this theme uh, that you get picked up and carried forward through the, the Bible of salvation is introduced, which should be a pretty quick pushback to how we talk about salvation in modern church that is basically this kind of you know, spiritual escape into heaven. What it's referencing is basically this political... Uh, political event where the Israelites are are liberated, they're rescued from their oppressors by God defeating the oppressors so that they could get away. That's the idea here. So God helped them by stopping the army from catching them, and they were able to be liberated to freedom, and this is called salvation. So my point here, it's not to introduce this, this word study or, or try to draw too much out of it. It's to highlight the importance of the story of Israel's exodus. This isn't just a story in Israel's history. This is the identity-forming moment. They, they Remember, Israel didn't as, exist as a people until they basically grew up in slavery in Egypt. And they weren't a nation. They're essentially a group of of refugees, slave workers, until they were liberated and freed, they were not their own people. And so this moment is what creates them as a people. And then you get the 40 years in the wilderness and uh, Mount Sinai and Torah and all that. But this, this action of God to liberate the slaves and establish them as their own people by defeating their oppressors is one of the foundational pieces of what it means for God to save, for God to restore. And this theme isn't done when you leave the book of Exodus. It literally carries forward all the way through the Old Testament. So we talked about this in earlier episodes, the the role of exile 
and Israel's later exile to, uh, to Babylon. And when they find themselves in exile, what they look for is essentially another exodus. They're back in slavery. They're no longer their own nation. They're no longer their own people. But they know exactly what they want to happen because their entire ancestry is built on this story of God liberating them from slavery. So what they're waiting for is this great liberation, which is what the prophets promise will one day happen. And it's those words of liberation that Jesus stands up in the synagogue, opens the scroll in the book of Isaiah, and reads and says, these things are being fulfilled in your hearing me read them right now. So then liberation is a really good way to think about what Jesus was doing here and what he felt like his responsibility was. Totally. I I think one way to parse all the complexity of thinking about the atonement and what Jesus accomplished, one way to uh, kind of prioritize things or find what we should privilege is to look at how in the Gospels, Jesus himself articulated his own understanding of why he had come. And if you look at that, it is clear and clear through and through that he was coming to liberate people. So what he reads in the synagogue is actually a a mashup. It's kind of more complicated than we have time to get into, but it's a mashup of two passages in Isaiah, uh, 58, 6 and 61, 1 and 2. He's reading verses talking about this new exodus depicted in this day of Jubilee. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is this year of Jubilee where basically all people will be released from their debts, but more importantly, released from the bondage that had come from those debts. So they basically had... those who had had to sell themselves off as indentured servants because they had been in lifelong financial debt would be liberated back to the land that their family used to own and they would be their financial socioeconomic cultural oppression would all end and interestingly again don't have time to get in all of this jesus cuts out part of the rest of that verse which is speaking about the day of judgment and so what he does is he literally curates A passage of verses all speaking about God's action to come and liberate the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And that's what he gets up and reads as his inaugural sermon. And another one you see in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew is Jesus himself explains why he came. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we talked about how this this idea of ransom is basically just a a subsection of liberation. It's talking about he's going to pay the cost required to free people. He's going to pay the the cost of liberation. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true But it is available wherever you get your podcasts
So how is he paying the cost to liberate someone? Like, what is the cost to liberate someone? And why does dying on a cross liberate anyone? That's a good question. Of all the passages, I think, where you see Jesus talking about his own meaning, I think there's one that kind of floats above all of that. It's found in all the synoptic gospels. So situation, Jesus gets accused of... He's casting out demons, which is enacting liberation from these demonic forces. And the religious folk accuse him of casting out those demons by Beelzebub, who's like the prince of the demons. So they accuse him of casting out demons by demons. He gets into this thing about how Satan's kingdom will fall if it's divided. So clearly that's not what he's doing. And then he gives this little vignette about what's required for someone to come and plunder goods from somebody's home it requires tying him up do you remember that yeah that sounds familiar let me let me read that for you real quick and then uh i want to know kind of how you've thought about this or how you've heard people talk about it so he gets accused of of casting out demons by the prince of demons so jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables how can satan drive out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself that house cannot stand And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Uh, He's just making the point that Satan's not working against himself, which is to just refute their their crazy claim that he is casting out demons by the very demons that he's casting out. That's all I've heard it explained as is basically like he's making a case that he's not the devil. He's he's God. He's not Satan. But then listen to this. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And if you remember, then he goes on, and this is where you get the threat of the unforgivable sin, uh, which is a whole other interesting conversation. But just just think about that. You referenced uh, something you had learned from N.T. Wright in the last episode, which was why would Jesus have lived 30-some-odd years on this life doing things that seemed really meaningful and significant if all that was needed was his blood? If all we needed was for him to die, then why did he come and live the way that he did? And one of the most obvious, you know, noticeable, remarkable things about the way he lived was that he cast out demons from people, right? right? He was exercising demons. So part of what N.T. Wright was getting us to say is like, listen, the, the way you understand the atonement is in light of what Jesus was doing, that what he was doing was to show what he was all about. So... One of the center points is Jesus is liberating people from this demonic oppression. He's liberating lepers from their leprosy. He's liberating the sick from their illnesses. So the whole idea with tying up the strong man is that he's saying this this earth right now is being controlled by the the prince of this world, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to say. And that's the strong man that, that would need to be tied up by Jesus when he comes into this this house in order for him to take rulership back of this world. So he has to like fix those things that are wrong. Yeah, but but check it. He doesn't even say to take rulership back. He says to plunder the house. 
the way Matthew says it, it expands a little more. It says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. So Jesus isn't making the point of he's tying Satan up to reinstate himself as ruler in Satan's place. That's definitely a motif that's going on here. But that's not what he says he came for. I mean, what he said he came for was to earlier, we said, was to ransom many. And here he's comparing his exorcisms to this idea of, just like you said, tying up the one who is in control of the world. So so Satan is deemed the, the prince and power of the air. Going, This is because the writers of the New Testament read those chapters at the beginning of Genesis really well. So they totally understood this whole, all the crazy stuff that we got into earlier where there were these divine beings, these sons of God that rebelled, and then God gave them authority to rule these other nations. And there's somehow this rebellion between those beings and they had propped themselves up as essentially the the true gods on earth, even though they weren't. That whole story is the is the background for the New Testament writers and Jesus himself understanding that this one being, Satan, is the real ruler here and that people are oppressed in their bondage and slavery to Satan. And so what Jesus is saying is that in order to liberate the people, he has to somehow, he's using this metaphor, go in and tie up the guy who's in charge, right? So if the, if the imagery is there's somebody in a house and it's not just plunder, it's not things, it's actually captives, it's slaves who've been kidnapped and, and kept in slavery, then in order to ever lead those people out in a new exodus, something would have to be done to at least preoccupy that guy for a little while. Someone's got to sit on him, hold him down, tie his hands, point him in the other direction. Uh, we, we need someone to create a diversion. Yeah, or in the Kung Fu movies, it's like the perfect judo chop where he just sleeps for like a half hour, you know, and like wakes up fine. It's like that magical punch to the head that somehow doesn't do any brain damage, but puts him right to sleep. I'm just thinking of Timon and Pumbaa when they create a diversion. <laughs> it's been too long. I can't remember. What did they do? Uh, they need to get the hyenas out in a way. So they uh, they sing that song about, um, wait, which one's the pig? Is that Pumbaa? About how juicy and, and wonderful he would be to eat. And then they run away. So what's your plan for getting past those guys? Live bait. Good idea. Hey. Come on, Timon. You guys have to create a diversion. What do you want me to do? Dress a drag and do the hula? And then I think uh, Simba and Nala are able to go in and take back Pride Rock. <laughs> so this is why C.S. Lewis in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, he, what he was depicting in a story form was a version of... Uh, of liberation and ransom and Christus Victor all merged together. Uh, and people have given him a lot of flack for it because it, it's depicting Aslan, the Christ figure, as actually paying a price to the White Witch, who's the Satan figure. And you don't necessarily see that here in the scriptures as, as a price being paid. What C.S. Lewis was getting at is that the death was a willful choice by God to suffer death that would free people, both the good guys and bad little, what's his name? Edmund. Oh yeah. Who had gone to the dark side that he was paying the price that would basically 
disempower the white witch in order to to free those people. There's some flaws in the picture, but that's basically the the idea here. In Christ's life, he does not take up the throne. He does not replace Satan on the throne. He does the opposite. He lets Satan win. And I think we've been a little uncareful with our language when we talk about Christus Victor, uh, when we talked about talk about the victory of Christ, Christ through the cross and resurrection, because the New Testament doesn't actually talk about the gospel in the sense that Jesus has fully defeated or, say, killed Satan. It uses very different words, more temporary terms. And the reason here is like, just think about this. Go back to the whole premise is there are these other divine beings who have gone into this rebellion and wreak havoc, right? That's what the Satan idea, Beelzebub, these figures are these divine beings. In the worldview, they they aren't mortal beings. They are immortal. So for Jesus to go in, it's not going to be a karate chop that kills Satan, right? Even when he casts out the whole legion of demons, they go into the pigs, right? Like they don't die. They just go somewhere else. So how do you liberate people who are under the power of someone who can't be killed or at least seemingly can't be killed Mm. is you have to somehow tie them up or again, occupy them in order to lead out those captives. We'll get into more of this stuff later. That's where the whole idea of Hades, this underworld where these rebellious beings are sent to prison. That's, that's where this idea comes from is they're mortal beings. So how do you deal with a rebel mortal being? It's basically a kind of imprisonment. Like you have to contain them Mm. And how Revelation treats that and sort of what the death of death will be and Hades itself being thrown in the lake of fire, that's fun stuff for future episodes. But the point here is this is this is the victory of Christ by the mode of liberation, and ransom is a way of talking about the cost of it, but the basic idea is that Jesus has freed people. People have to be willing to be freed, right? Not everyone has actually been set free. But the the point of his life, death, and resurrection was to come and free people from bondage. And so, like, look at the Gospel of John. The whole motif in John is, is the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And so what you get in the Gospel of John is people being converted, won over, persuaded from the kingdom of darkness which they're in bondage to, to the kingdom of light. It's basically a winning this, you know, Jesus has gone in, he's invaded enemy territory and led a train of captives, basically freed slaves out into the side of freedom. Okay, that's cool that there's like other things we're liberated from too. Is there a piece that we're liberated from like death? Is that is that in there at all? Yeah, totally. And, uh, and Paul uses this language a lot as their enemies. So it's not just Satan, uh, but death is one of the enemies. Sin is one of the enemies. And in this kind of, you know, almost scandalous overturn of the Jewish religious thinking of the time, the religious establishment themselves had become an oppressive entity that, that the people needed to be liberated from. And even more scandalous is that Paul actually talks about the law somehow working in junction with these enemies. And so Jews actually needed to be liberated from the oppressive power of Torah itself, which is a whole huge conversation, get into new perspective stuff. Uh, But you basically have these oppressive forces, death, Satan, sin, and the law. Rutledge does a good job. She basically says these are like capital F forces that they get personified. They're not just uh, concrete ideas. They're like these personified oppressive uh, powers. 
and we need to be liberated from all of them. But again, the main framework which we're supposed to see all this in is is real life socioeconomic practical oppression, right? So we can't forget that Israel, the Jews, are being deeply oppressed by the Roman Empire and being oppressed by Herod, the false Jewish king. So when Jesus is talking about liberating people from the captivity of Satan, that does not mean he has no interest in freeing them from captivity under Rome. To, to liberate someone from the kingdom of darkness is very much correlated with liberating them from the entity that is keeping them captive. So Yeah, it'd be like, let's say we lived... Um in some sort of city in the United States that had been like overtaken by another country. And then this guy comes to liberate us. And all he did was make it so that we didn't have to die or something like that. It'd be like, well, cool. But like, we're also still under oppressive control by this other country. Like, can you do something about that too? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, what good would it be if Jesus came and just forgave people, but they, remained sick, they remained oppressed by demons, and they remained under the threat of being crucified by Roman soldiers, right? So think, like we talked about this earlier, think about even how Mary anticipates the gospel in the Magnificat. She sings this song celebrating that God is leveling the playing field, lifting up the, the downcast. She's interpreting the coming of the Messiah as a new exodus for, for Jews. And, and think about this, we don't talk about this often enough. If the main point of Jesus's work on the cross was all about forgiving sins, then he probably would have chosen to enact his death on Yom Kippur, which is the one day every year in the Jewish festival, big, huge celebration. There would have been plenty of ways for him to die a public death on an event that is largely focused on forgiveness of the community. He didn't. He died during what? Passover the event that's celebrating the Exodus. So, and the Gospel of John actually goes so far as to sort of stretch the timeline to put Jesus's death on the night of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which is not a sacrifice has anything to do with forgiveness. The whole point of the Passover lamb was to mark out, remember with this uh, blood on the doorpost idea, was to mark out what people were in God's community going to be liberated. And that event, that sacrifice kicked off the beginning of the Exodus, their actual march to freedom. And so by framing, which all the gospels do, the death of Jesus as the Passover sacrifice, they're saying that what it is accomplishing is a second Exodus, this great new Exodus that Jesus is the the new and greater Moses who is going to lead Israel into freedom. And so what Paul does is he expands and he gets really creative and he basically looks around and he says, whatever enemy there is that's oppressing people in the world, what Jesus did and who Jesus is has the power to liberate us from it. So he didn't leave it to, we just want to be free of Rome. We just want to be free of Herod. He included, we also need to be free of our own sin. We also need to be free of the things that are killing us, the things that make us want to kill others. We need to be liberated from these demonic powers, these satanic forces, and we need to be liberated even from the law. And again, that's a whole longer conversation. So when Paul expands liberation, he doesn't remove the essence, this kernel of the fact that what God's trying to do is liberate people from the things that hurt them. So what happens so much in the Reformed world is we just want to say, yeah, but we really just need to be freed from our sin. Like we're really just in slavery to sin. And that, I think what it does is it distorts our lens till we get it all backward. So instead of viewing sin as a 
as a power that we need to be liberated from, instead of viewing death as this great enemy that Jesus needed to free us from, this this fear of death, as Hebrews said. And instead of seeing God as constantly working to liberate people from what oppresses us, all the things that oppress us, we basically ignore oppression, oftentimes end up being complicit in it, and then just highlight forgiveness as this reduced this reduced peace. So my pitch is that if you hold this idea of God as the great liberator, you can include forgiveness and you can include substitutionary atonement. You can include all of it. You can lump it all in and you can frame so much of it as ways that God has liberated us from these forces, which is, I think, exactly what Jesus was, was thinking himself. This segment is called Questions from Tim's Mom. So I'm struggling as I'm reading Romans 2, where Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Doesn't that point to penal substitutionary atonement, which you were saying is an incorrect interpretation of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? I'm listening to you talk about, oh, there is no, you know, retributive God. This is not a God who desires to punish us. And yet, we're reading right here, God will repay each person according to what they have done. The wages of sin is death. Is this just because Paul is a whack job or what? I'm, you're not recording that part. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And when I think about the wrath of God, I think about who is he wrathful or what is he wrathful towards, right? That's that's an important thing to think about. And and in the penal substitutionary view, he's wrathful against the person who hasn't accepted Jesus because when God looks down and looks at them, he sees all that sin and he can't be around the sin. So he's, he's wrathful towards that person. But in this other way of thinking, when we see liberation as the main way to think about things, the person you don't want to be is the one that when, when God comes, he needs to actually remove that person from the scene in order for there to be a paradise. And so you're trying to avoid being different things in both of these worlds. But it's much more helpful to think about when we view the world, what would need to change in order for this place to be set right and to be made right? And that's sort of what this whole idea of the day of the Lord is in the Bible. Totally. I think that's a good way of saying it. You know, we've talked about this a bunch, Nate, and I don't think you can repeat it enough, but the idea of wrath is tied to this day of the Lord or this this future judgment of God. And that was good news in biblical theology long before it ever became a threat. It started to become a threat in the prophets when they started to look at Israel and said, you're not just the victims. Actually, many of you, the leaders, the king, the priests, the false prophets, you've actually become the oppressors. So this day is going to not be good news for you. It'll be bad news. It'll be scary. But we talked about how there's also this kind of further, deeper, more self-critical piece where we can all realize it's not just us good guys over here, bad guys over there, but there's also this line of good and evil that runs through all of us. What I think is just so important, and it's necessary to do decent biblical theology, is realize that idea, that like really deeply self-critical idea that there's also evil in me and in each one of us, that God also needs to deal with that, that has to come second. That idea is is secondary to this idea that there really are evil people 
doing evil things, who don't want to stop doing those evil things. And the only way to take care of the world and to take care of victims is to take care of those evil people. So when we talk about liberation, it's God doing both. It's God wanting to liberate people from their oppressors and liberate people from whatever parts of them are also oppressing, which is what Mako talked about is this healing restorative justice. Yeah, I think that piece is easier to understand, the piece of removing the people that are bad, because that's sort of that same way of thinking about God's wrath is like, well, yeah, just take out the bad people, right? But it's much harder to think about, okay, in what ways am I causing evil and oppression in the world that I would need to be dealt with? And of course, we like to view ourselves as one of the good people that wouldn't need to be removed. But in what ways do I actually need to be? And this is where I think the view of healing and God's restorative justice in what ways do I need to be healed in order to not be causing this oppression and this evil in the world? The reason I say that that needs to come second is because there's been this propensity, especially in evangelicalism, to put that first and to say that, that the real issue is God dealing with each one of us individually. And that the main way we talk about what that thing is that God is doing is forgiveness. And it positions that personal side up against socioeconomic and political injustice and oppression. And it minimizes the way that the cross and the gospel and God's character stands in opposition to political oppression of communities, peoples, nations. Does that make sense? Basically, what I'm trying to say is like part of the way liberation theology is is cast out in evangelicalism is the move to say, you're right, it's all about that each one of us are good and evil. And don't ever let us think about things in terms of good people and evil people. We all have to think about the good and evil in each of us. And what that does is it basically takes the whole picture, the whole conversation out of the realm of political socioeconomic injustice and oppression from systems and empires, and it puts it all down to the level of personal forgiveness. And the reason I think this is important is We've addressed this before. There's been kind of a war between liberation theology and penal substitution or reformed theology. Uh, And there's honestly entire coalitions that exist to claim that a theology focused on a penal satisfaction of the wrath of God is the gospel, the only way to know the gospel. And that is what adds fuel to this fire if people reject essentially liberation theology and they reject the social justice that would be the natural outflow of this liberation theology. So what you will hear in your church, some of you may have just heard this if you went to church on Easter, is not a direct attack saying, you know, don't do justice. We don't care about oppression or, you know, we don't like liberation theology. You won't hear anything like that. What you'll hear is just constantly a reinforcement that the main concern is your personal issue of enslavement to sin, your personal issue of facing death. What it'll do is it'll basically prioritize and privilege these personal individual forms of oppression that all essentially stem to sin and the need for forgiveness. And that is the thing that gets celebrated over and over and over again. So the main good news, even on Resurrection Sunday on Easter, that gets told is that Christ paid the price for our sacrifice so we don't get punished by God and we get to go to heaven. And the resurrection essentially ends up getting turned into this, you know, stamp of approval on that sacrifice. 
And when you sit in pews and you just hear that version of the story told over and over and over and over again, it becomes very easy to then a couple years down the road say, hey, see those people over there who are going on a march through the streets, who are claiming the need for a reform in the criminal justice system, who are demanding accountability for police shootings? Those people are doing something that's not pertaining to the gospel. That's social justice work. They're trying to take liberation in their own hands. They're trying to do something that Jesus didn't really care about. What Jesus really cared about was forgiving your sins. There's this kind of subtle indoctrination that goes on, which honestly has has indoctrinated an entire generation or many that actually those who, who most reverently proclaim that Christ died to liberate us, or at least believe in that gospel, also end up standing opposed to various forms of liberation projects going on in our very own culture. All right, so we're kind of wrapping up talking about atonement now. Um, we are going to kind of touch on it as we go forward, but these were our primary conversations about that. And to wrap things up, obviously we've said pretty clearly that we think penal substitutionary atonement is a pretty bad way at looking at what Jesus did on the cross. But we don't want to make the mistake of saying, if you believe that, then you cannot be a Christian because that's not helpful and it shuts down conversation. What we do want to say is there's a lot of reform that would need to happen to penal substitutionary atonement and to the ways that it's used. And I think the primary one is just believing that there's so many other ways to think about the cross and to think about what it accomplished. And opening your eyes and opening your ears to those can be really helpful. And maybe that'll give you a bigger picture of what Jesus did. And maybe you won't even have to hold on to penal substitutionary atonement at all. Yeah, and so we've walked away from thinking penal substitution is helpful, and we actually think it's really problematic and worth getting rid of altogether. And we think it's actually just wrong. But if you don't, and lots of people aren't there yet, I think there are three things that need to happen. One is you need to recognize all of the other motifs for understanding the cross and refuse to put penal substitution as the way of understanding the gospel. Second, you need to deprivilege penal substitution from being the lens that you view everything else through. There's simply no New Testament evidence that would justify the claim that Jesus paying the penalty for our sin or satisfying the wrath of God is somehow the center of what Christ accomplished through the cross. And lastly, if you're going to hold on to penal substitution and you're going to add all the other motifs and you're going to make sure that penal substitution isn't privileged as the center of all your theology, you also have to do a whole lot of reform. If it sounds or leads people to to say or believe things like God killed Jesus or Jesus died because of God or Anything that feels like divine child abuse or separates the Trinity, it's simply toxic and it's and it's wrong. So we say get rid of it, but if you want to hold on to it, you got a lot of work to do to make sure that your way of talking about the cross isn't toxic theology. Okay, thanks for joining us for these conversations. Obviously, big, important stuff. We're basically talking about everything to do with Christianity. So glad you guys are here. If you got any thoughts or questions, email us, contact at almostheretical.com. Or you can reach out on Twitter. Stick around for the next few episodes. We've got some fun guests coming on. It's going to be a good time. Peace. See ya.